Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the dangerous state of Donald Trump's mental health re-emerging as a political issue, this time brought up by Nikki Haley, who will be hammering the theme for the next month that Trump is mentally unfit for the presidency, which gets under his thin skin, provoking crude insults, name-calling and threats to her donors from the chronically narcissistic sociopath whose cult-like spell has captured a third of the country. Joining us is Dr. Bandy Lee, a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist and a world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. She is currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition, and her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Then we'll examine how Iran is emboldened by constant signals that the United States does not want to go to war again in the Middle East with an American public weary of the waste of lives and treasure from the Iraq and Afghanistan misadventures. Joining us to assess what can be done to deter Iran, which is benefiting enormously from the US-backed Israeli war in Gaza, is Nada Hashemi, the director of the Alawid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding and an Associate Professor of Middle East and Islamic Politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. A non-resident fellow at Democracy for the Arab World Now, he's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future, and Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Then finally we'll look into how Hungary's dictator Orban is holding up EU funds to Ukraine and Sweden's entry into NATO with naked blackmail as this kleptocrat shakes down the rest of Europe for subsidies that keep him and his cronies in power. Joining us is Kim Lane Shepley, a professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University. From 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest, doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching both at the University of Budapest and at Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program in Gender and Culture. After 1989, Shepley studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods, and she's the author of 9-11, The Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag, and carrying a Bible. 
And joining us now, Dr. Bandy Lee, a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist and world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and at the Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. And she's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition. And her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Bandy Lee. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And, And Dr. Lee, are you in any way surprised that the person who is now referring to your work and your analysis of Trump in, in the, uh, the bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, is none other than the Republican challenger, Nikki Haley, who is now going public, warning about Trump's mental state. And the more she does that, the more he goes crazy and attacks her in the most misogynistic and in many cases quite crude ways. And I'm assuming that this dynamic will continue because clearly Nikki Haley is getting under Trump's very thin skin. Yes, someone was bound to use this as a weapon because it is uh, the elephant in the room. And um, it's not surprising, but I fear that it probably won't do much good because of just how much his mental impairment has progressed and his followers in the Republican Party have gone along and uh, having invested so much uh, for so long um, in and being in denial has actually helped them to normalize this and whereas what Nikki Haley is bringing up is is important and true and valid. Um, it may be just too little too late. Well, Nikki Haley, of course, has the backing of the Koch network. And today on Trump's Truth Social, he went after her, calling her bird brain. But he also threatened her donors, meaning the Koch network. And they have deep pockets. So, and clearly Trump is worried that that kind of money is going to keep a campaign going. And at least it's going to, we know it's going to go for at least another month uh, till South Carolina primaries. So it would seem to me that even though you're pessimistic, Nikki Haley is not without resources. Yes. Uh, well, I hope so. I, I hope it has an effect. And I hope. Um, some part of uh, his followers will come on board with what she's speaking of. I uh, hope this will translate into something more concrete, however, in that there would be um, a panel of mental health experts who are brought together and that the true importance of mental fitness could come into public discourse. So far, she has mentioned um, fitness tests only for people of a certain age, which covers dementia mostly because the risk of it increases with age. But that's not the most 
dangerous impairment that should be of concern to the public. Uh, the most dangerous impairments are actually present quite early on in adulthood. And so there is a lot that it doesn't cover, and there's a lot of education that needs to be done for the public. But I fear we've come to a place that is very dangerous and very far gone and um, somewhat beyond uh, the level of rational discussion. So as a psychiatrist, so how do you measure this extraordinary phenomenon that clearly Trump is a damaged person, perhaps damaged by his father, who said, son, you've got to be a killer, you've got to be a killer, and you can't be a loser. And since he lost the last election, he couldn't face that loss. And he hoisted this lie of the stop the steal. And the amazing thing is that it's metastasized into the core belief in the Republican Party. Something like 90% of Republicans now believe in the big lie that Trump won the last election and Biden lost. And 42%, I understand, believe that the FBI was behind the January 6th insurrection. So how did this happen? And I mean, in other words, how do you distinguish between Trump's psychological state and the country's psychological state? Well, that was quite apparent to most of us. And that is why when I edited The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, Uh, In 2017, I emphasized that his mental impairments were of a public health concern. We were not uh, occupied with his mental state as an individual. We were not treating him like a patient, not diagnosing him, certainly not um, privately uh, trying to see him as a, uh, again, as a patient. We were concerned about him as a public health threat because such impairments in in such an influential office was bound to translate into this kind of um, metastasis, as you called it. Um, But it's it's more uh, what I call Trump contagion, which develops into a kind of shared psychosis or a folie a million when there are such large numbers involved, madness by the millions. And um, it is that it illustrates the power of the mind where um, when mental symptoms spread and delusions uh, spread much faster than rational persuasion, uh, that the mind is capable of, of adjusting to any belief. And no amount of evidence or proof or logical conclusion that his words are incorrect uh, will be able to persuade a population that has been affected in this way, whose minds have been taken in by this uh, spread of symptoms whereby um, when caught by delusions, uh, when delusions are induced, they will look very much like the primary person with uh, with the original symptoms. Uh, Donald Trump, who 
has a psychological structure where he simply cannot accept reality, cannot accept loss, cannot accept uh, that he is not uh, the most powerful uh, God-ordained omnipotent figure uh, who needs to be back in the presidency. So this has echoes, though, at least to my mind, of George Orwell's 1984, where everything's turned on its head, war is peace and truth are lies. And also, is it also similar to the the psychological state of, in North Korea, where this one family has imposed this dynasty and this delusion, as you describe it, about these people yes. that has captured yes, the whole nation? The same, the same psychological effect, uh, the cult-like following that happens in street gangs, which I've studied in prison, um, in prison gangs. And uh, it happens at larger scale in dictatorships. And because uh, instead of the leadership position serving the nation or the people, the people are actually serving the leader in order to fulfill his very deep emotional needs and deficiencies so as uh, to have to revert reality in a way that uh, makes him not as inadequate and not as worthless as he inwardly believes he is. And so uh, in order to overcompensate for it, uh, he needs to be um, God ordained or the second coming of God himself. Uh, and um, that's what the leaders of North Korea have done. They place themselves in a godlike status, and we've seen that in a number of um, uh, countries that have disintegrated over time because this kind of uh, this kind of arrangement always, uh, depletes a nation and eventually leads it to destruction. It's a pathological process. So I've often called it a death spiral as well. Um, we've entered a death spiral in that uh, we may lose our democracy, we may lose the nation itself, or given the technology that is available for this type of leader, could be Uh, also the demise of the world. So it is a very frightening situation. And you were saying earlier, Dr. Bandy Lee, that Trump's mental instability is worsening and more demonstrative. I mean, he did rail recently against Nikki Haley, confusing her with Nancy Pelosi, uh, which, of course, led Nikki Haley to also question his sanity. and, And basically her argument to get elected is that that Donald Trump is the best thing that Joe Biden has going for him because she's implying that it's going to get worse. Do you think it will get worse? And at, at what point will it become obvious, even to his own MAGA base? Well, there's a mistaken notion that if his symptoms grow worse and that if he declines or that his uh, criminality would be exposed, that he would lose popularity. But in fact, the reverse is true. The more severe his 
symptoms become or his um, egregious behavior comes to light, uh, the more his followers will need to deny uh, those things, the the way that they're um, they have been led into this kind of personality cult, and so um, so in order to deny what is happening, they will actually elevate him further, uh, bring him to a godlike status, make him infallible, or make his uh, leadership something that is uh, divinely orchestrated for. Uh, some some greater purpose. And so that in itself will not um, cause followers to fall away. What will cause them to fall away is if there were uh, actual proper intervention. In other words, if his indictments actually led to incarceration, um, discrediting, and, uh, and most importantly, um, removal from exposure to the public, then then that could be um, healing. Also, a psychiatric intervention. If we were to truly bring the psychiatric issues into public discourse um, and bring on an actual proper psychiatric intervention, then uh, then that will have an effect. But unless there is, there are actual consequences and um, a recalibration back to reality through uh, implementation of proper procedures, he will continue to rise, in fact, rise all the more for being able to commit these crimes or uh, be this mentally impaired and still be allowed to uh, run for the presidency. So how would you then conduct that kind of intervention? What would it take? Well, we almost uh, came to that kind of intervention early in his presidency um, when my book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, first came out in late 2017, within three months. We were the number one topic of national conversation, and Congress members were inviting us to speak with them. Uh, I met with over 50 Congress members, uh, and and actually that began soon after the conference I held at Yale School of Medicine early in 2017. And uh, there are mechanisms that they... Uh, um, that they thought of at the time, mostly the 25th Amendment and uh, impeachment. Uh, contrary to popular belief, these were executable at that time. Um, but it needed to, but there needed to be um, public uh, uh, public endorsement. And so the Congress members charged us with educating the public medically, so that they could intervene politically, that would have been the proper response. And we were headed that way until the American Psychiatric Association stepped in and uh, very aggressively removed us from public discourse and called us unethical armchair psychiatrists, all kinds of defamatory statements, which were actually untrue. Uh, we found out later that they uh, that they were vying for federal funding and, in fact, under an administration that only increased funding for scientific organizations that went against science. 
they were one of the uh, enormous beneficiaries uh, receiving unprecedented windfalls of federal funding. But uh, that, uh, that kind of intervention brought the nation to, uh, to this helpless place where all the calamities that ensued, which could have been prevented, were not. Uh, that could be reversed with a similar uh, aggressive strategy. Uh, in fact, if the American Psychiatric Association itself were to um, apologize for its errors and uh, misleading the public through disinformation campaigns uh, and and actually play an active role, as it has in its own ethics guidelines, allow us to speak and not only uh, have independent mental health professionals speak, but but take a leadership role, then we may finally address the number one topic of concern in Donald Trump's political um, ascendancy, which is his mental impairment and his ability to beguile the public in a way that leads to pathological bonds and and uh, translates into frenzied support in uh, that is actually uh, a pathological enmeshment. It's not uh, a natural organic course, uh, a healthy life affirming course. So, because this uh, because the condition of our nation is so far gone at this point, I do feel that professional intervention is required. But I have little hope, uh, unfortunately, that the American Psychiatric Association will do that because they are funded by the pharmaceutical industry. They are uh, they not long ago got a brand new building in the middle of Washington, D.C., moving from Virginia because of all the windfalls of funding. And so that, in a sense, is uh, is how our nation has come to this point. Right. That there are so many monetary interests that act against public interest, that the natural course and the natural actions cannot be taken. So that is a tragedy of our time. But it is still possible. I mean, as a, as a psychiatrist myself, I'm very hopeful, uh, if we were given the chance, that there could be uh, 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 an appropriate intervention that stops us in our tracks toward toward destruction and possible demise and uh well i've well that's been my career i've intervened i've intervened with all kinds of violent individuals uh, having as a specialty the treatment of violent offenders and so uh there there are treatments available indeed well you brought up the word violence and just in closing that's the subtext here isn't it trump eschews uh, violence. He he relishes violence. He issues violence threats. It's a, more than a subtext. So at some point, maybe we'll see some real violence. I mean, Mitt Romney spends $5,000 a week on security because of Trump's threats. I mean, it's crazy. Yes. Yes. Well, he was bound to bring more violence. And the escalating levels of uh, mass shootings, street crimes, uh, white-collar crimes, um, uh, 
all kinds of uh, breaches of the law uh, can be traced back to his influence. And we'll see more of it. And in fact, we're not even seeing the tip of the iceberg if he were to become president. Well, Dr. Bandy Lee, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Bandy Lee, who's a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist, and world expert on violence, who taught at Yale School of Medicine at Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, and she's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition. And her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining how Iran is emboldened by constant signals that the United States does not want to go to war again in the Middle East with an American public weary of the waste of lives and treasure from the Iraq and Afghanistan misadventures. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nada Hashemi, who's the director of the Alawite Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding and an associate professor of Middle East and Islamic politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, a non-resident fellow at Democracy for the Arab World Now. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement of the Struggle for Iran's Future, and Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nada Hashemi. Hi, Ian. Thanks for the invite. Well, thanks for joining us. And it seems to me, Nada, that the United States, in spite of its massive military power and the trillion-dollar military budget, that we're not deterring Iran in particular. Uh, we're not deterring Russia or China or, for that matter, North Korea, which is uh, a couple of top American analysts on North Korea are even suggesting that Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war against the South. So, you know, let's just focus on Iran, which is your specialty. Is it clear to you, as it is to me, Inada, that we simply aren't deterring Iran? We're making signals all the time that we don't want to go to war with Iran, and they're taking advantage of that and basically pushing the envelope. I would agree with that uh, framing, uh, but of course the big question is, why are we failing to deter Iran's regional ambitions? And I think the answer um, really can be laid at the doorstep of uh, a failed US foreign policy. It's a lot of bad, consistent mistakes made in Washington, DC toward the region which have given the Iranian regime an opening to expand their influence in the region. And so, of course, your listeners will all know that the biggest, I think, foreign policy disaster of the United States, probably since World War II, after Vietnam, was the Iraq War, which was badly conceived, um, deceptive, and um, you know created mayhem in the Middle East, but of course opened the door 
for Iran to extend its influence, you know, throughout Iraq, a country that, you know, prior Iran had very little influence there. Um, so I think that framework helps us understand what's happening today. You know, um, what we're seeing today in terms of Iran's influence uh, in the region uh, is really a byproduct of um, a failed U.S. foreign policy toward the region more broadly, but Israel-Palestine in particular. You know, how different uh, the Middle East would be today if uh, in, in previous years, if previous administrations, both Republican and Democratic, had simply taken the Israel-Palestine conflict much more seriously and solved it in a way where both Israelis and Palestinians would be able to live uh, in peace and security with each other. Um, um, had that been done, uh, I, th I don't think we would be having the same conversation today. Um, I think Iran in many ways is exploiting the crisis in Gaza to its own advantage, to mobilize public opinion, to exert its influence, particularly uh, in those areas where the United States is weak or reluctant to get involved. Um, and I think this framework that I've just laid out really helps us understand what's going on. Of course, Iran is the much weaker power here, and it likes to use its proxies to uh, confront its adversaries in the region, primarily the United States and its allies. Um, but I don't think we can understand uh, what looks like Iran's growing assertiveness, you know, outside of uh, a failed set of Western policies toward the region, for which Israel-Palestine perhaps is the longest failed policy that has completely upended, you know, the regional security architecture that sort of existed in the region, not perfectly, but at least there was a broad understanding. It's completely reoriented. Um, that security environment and all the different parties are responding in different ways, including Iran. Well, you can almost frame the discussion we're having that in terms of what Biden said the other day when reporters were asking about what he thought he could achieve by striking the Houthis. And he basically said, well, we're going to we're going to strike them, but it's, <laughs> it's not going to make any difference. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it was an interesting admission. And that seems to be here we are basically captured by Netanyahu's right-wing government in Israel. And at the end of the day, the United States could probably basically leave the Middle East, uh, be driven out of the Middle East after trillions of dollars of wasted treasure and lives, all because of the right-wing settler movement in Israel. Um, that's true, but I would actually take it a bit further. I, I wouldn't say it's just the right-wing settler movement in Israel, because I think these problems with respect to the Israel-Palestine conflict and the inability to recognize basic Palestinian human rights in an equal way um, extends beyond the Netanyahu government. Um, all governments in Israel, right from its inception until today, whether they're left-wing or right-wing, Labour or Likud, have not acknowledged uh, that the Palestinians have the same right to national self-determination um, that Israeli Jews have. So um, that's, I think, uh, I would frame it as a much bigger problem. But getting back to the United States, the United States has basically had bipartisan support for Israel for a very long time and is not willing to shift from that position. I mean, just to cite one example, uh, last week, Bernie Sanders introduced a resolution in the American, the U.S. Senate to attach some sort of you know, human rights conditionality on aid for Israel to subject U.S. aid to Israel for, to some kind of sort of review consistent with U.S. law. And that motion um, was defeated by a vote of 72 to 11. In other words, only 11 U.S. senators were even willing to contemplate the idea that, you know, American law should be respected with respect to its foreign aid. Uh, uh, that gives you a sense of, you know, I think how one-sided U.S. policy is. 
and it produces these types of problems that we're seeing right now. Um, so I would I would just go back to this to this idea of you know the United States not having really a consistent policy and it just relies on you know raw military power to try and solve its problems. But in many ways, that type of military engagement, either directly or indirectly through its allies, just creates more problems. So the example that you cited about Biden saying that the strikes on on the Houthi rebels in Yemen isn't working and we're going to have to just keep bombing them. Uh, this is part of a new strategy now that's been outlined where the United States is going to dig deep uh, into this policy of bombing um, Yemen, one of the poorest countries in the world, for um, many more months, hoping that it will deter uh, attacks on, on shipping in the Red Sea. I don't think it's going to work. I think it's going to um, simply exacerbate the conflict. And of course, what the Biden administration doesn't want to do in the context of the Houthis and in the context of attacks on Red Sea shipping is to see the connection with the war in Gaza. The United States wants to have it both ways. It wants to back horrific war crimes in Gaza, but it doesn't want to deal with the predictable regional consequences that that is going to have in the region um, in terms of its destabilizing effects, including you know, what the Houthis are doing. So the Houthis are being backed by Iran, but I think also they're responding to a much broader sort of sentiment that's deep-rooted in the Arab world, in the Islamic world, and in the global south, that this type of devastation and pounding of the people in Gaza is going to have predictable consequences, and it's going to create openings for, you know, bad actors like Iran to exploit a situation like this to assert its influence. So these things, I think, are very much linked, and I don't think we we, we can or should talk about them as somewhat separate. Um, the Houthi uh, situation here is directly linked to a failed U.S. and Western policy uh, toward the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, and unless that is dealt with, the um, the repercussions are going to rock the region and the world for many more months to come. Well, the revolutionary, uh, the Islamic Republic's basic doctrine, is at least the, that of its leadership, the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guard Corps, etc., and the Quds, essentially their doctrine is that they're going to want to drive the United States out of the Middle East, and they want to change Israel into Palestine and, and expand on the axis of resistance along with allies like uh, Russia and China. So to that extent, I find it extraordinary that they are being so successful and that the U.S. doesn't seem to be able to deter them and that they're able to exploit these vacuums largely created by our misguided policies. And one of the things I've, I've always found so extraordinary and clever on the part of the Iranian regime is that I don't think they've ever really wanted a nuclear weapon. They don't need a nuclear weapon, but so much attention has been given to them over their nuclear program that they've managed to sort of get enormous leverage out of threatening to get a nuclear weapon when it doesn't seem to be their intention. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think in this crisis, I think Iran now is using this this crisis in Gaza and its repercussions throughout the region to actually expand and increase its uh, uranium uh, production and its nuclear uh, centrifuges um, in order to get closer to a nuclear weapon, knowing that it has, that by doing so, it has bargaining um, um, power, greater bargaining power and more leverage with the United States if ever a moment comes where they have to negotiate these things. So one of the consequences of this horrific war in Gaza is not just Iran able to being able to expand its footprint in the region, but also to do what you just suggested, Ian, is to use its nuclear program um, to ramp it up 
knowing at the end of the day that it's going to have to give concessions because the world is not going to tolerate Iran getting a nuclear weapon, but knowing that it will um, have more bargaining power if it has more centrifuges to negotiate over. So, um, you know, this is a disaster any way you look at it. It's not good, obviously, for the people in Israel-Palestine. It's not good for the people of the Middle East. Um, and unfortunately, authoritarian regimes like Iran are using this crisis moment to sort of um, um, extend their footprint in the region, to take advantage of, you know, opportunities that have really been, I think, created by outside powers, uh, largely the United States, to do the type of things that we've been seeing over the last three months. Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's an open question what, what, what comes next, but I don't think we can really understand you know, this particular crisis and what Iran is doing outside of uh, the larger framework of U.S. Middle East policy, both in this current moment and in the past, that has, um, I think, given Iran openings that, that they're more than willing to exploit. And of course, the, the great hypocrisy is that the, the Iranian regime wants justice for the Palestinians, but no justice for their own women who they have beaten up and suppressed for rising up for some basic human rights. I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, uh, Nada. Thanks, Ian, for your attention to the issue. Always great to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Nada Hashmi, who's the director of the Alawid Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding and an associate professor of Middle East and Islamic politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, a non-resident fellow at Democracy for the Arab World Now, He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement of the Struggle for Iran's Future, and Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into how Hungary's dictator Orban is holding up EU funds to Ukraine and Sweden's entry into NATO with naked blackmail as this kleptocrat shakes down the rest of Europe for subsidies that keep him and his cronies in power. The newborn in the hammock rocks Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kim Lane Shepley, who's a professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University. And from 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at the Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program in Gender and Culture. And after 1989, Shepley studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. And she's the author of 9-11, The Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kim Lane Shepley. Nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And Viktor Orban, the Hungarian dictator who is loved by the Republican Party and by the, the likes of Tucker Carlson and the Heritage Foundation, is treated as a great leader and statesman. And, of course, Trump also hosted him and has praised him to the hilt. 
But he's basically a kleptocrat, isn't he? I mean, here and a blackmailer. I mean, he's blackmailing the EU. I think in a, what February the first that they have to take a vote on aid to Ukraine, which Orbán's promising to to veto it, along with Fico in Slovakia, and then Sweden's entry into NATO is he keeps switching. And I guess is he angling for a bribe? What, what's going on with the games that this guy plays? Yeah, well, so first of all, the way he keeps himself in power at home is that he channels state money, including EU money, to his cronies um, so that they become very rich and so that they support him and so on. So at home, you know, corruption runs, runs rampant. So it's certainly fair to call him a kleptocrat at home. But this is connected to how he acts in the international sphere. So one thing that's crucial to him is to keep the money flowing, particularly from the EU, which gives Hungary anywhere from two to six percent of its GDP every year in funds that come from Brussels. So a year ago, the European Commission, backed by the European Council, decided to freeze 30 million, 30 billion euro to Hungary until it got its act together and put in place an anti-corruption program and also tried to restore the independence of the judiciary along with a series of other things. And the Hungarians, you know, are think of this as intrusion on their national sphere and they, you know, they want the money, but they don't want to change anything. <laughs> so what they've been doing um, is doing fake changes at home, which we can talk about, but both the potential veto of money to Ukraine and the long dragged out process through which Hungary has been waffling on Swedish accession to NATO. Both of those are decision points where Hungary's um, vote is necessary. These require unanimity both in the EU and then also over in NATO. And every time there's a vote that requires Orban's approval, he holds out for cash. <laughs> in other words, he's holding out to try to get money, favors, privileged, you know, status and so on. Um, and so he uses these points for blackmail. And unfortunately, especially in the EU, the commission has been so eager to get these other things accomplished, you know, Ukrainian accession to, to the EU, money for the Ukrainian war effort and so on that basically what the von der Leyen commission has been doing is caving into Orban, giving him bits of money that he has not yet deserved. Again, deserved meaning that he hasn't done the reforms that are necessary to get it back. Um, and so, yeah, so Orban sets up veto points. He waits for everybody to get exasperated with him. And then he holds out his hand and says, you know, it's like a toll booth, you know, for money, I will let you pass. <laughs> and that's what he's doing in both cases. How much is he doing that is at the behest of his friend, Vladimir Putin? Well, the thing to know about Orban is that he's nobody's puppet. So, you know, I don't think he would do anything just for Putin. Um, that said, you know, it's important to look at his pattern of vetoes and holdouts and so on. Um, it's true that whenever anything involving Russia is on the table, Orban gums up the works. But it's also true that anytime China, anytime China is on the table, Orban gums up the works. Um, and so Orban is kind of, you know, for, for money, he will arrange to sabotage EU processes for whatever state outside 
the EU is paying him to gum up the works. So it's not just Russia, although it is Russia, but it's also China. It's also, you know, other kleptocracies, other autocracies, particularly oil-rich states that want some favors from the EU. So Orban is kind of, you know, for sale, basically. And, you know, I think everybody focuses on his ties with Putin, which are real. But, you know, those aren't the only ones going on. And also Orban would, you know, he's the kind of, leader who would never let himself become a puppet of someone else's. So I think people overestimate the extent to which Putin has Orban over a barrel. It's rather the reverse, right, which is that Putin needs Orban, and then Orban demands stuff from Russia to be able to act as Russian Russia's agent, either in NATO or uh, in the EU. So why is Biden and his administration not isolating this guy and telling the truth about him, you know, and exploding the Republican myth about him? Because the Republicans, I think Trump sees him as a kind of role model, doesn't he? Yeah, well, Trump sees him as a role model, especially when Trump can remember where he's from. Um, there was a moment of, you know, Trumpian confusion when he attributed, when he said, you know, Orban was the president of Turkey. Um, so, you know, you always wonder a little bit exactly what Trump thinks. But it's certainly the case that people in Trump's orbit have been very close to Orban. In fact, the most recent revelation, which I found kind of shocking, was that the um, the Heritage Foundation had run a kind of um, role play for a coup attempt after the 2020 election. You know, coup attempt meaning something like January 6th, which actually happened, but also all the various ways in which the electoral college deadlines could be gamed and so on, They and fake electors and all that kind of stuff. The exercise was set up in part by John Eastman, who, as you know, was under indictment um, in Georgia and is an unindicted co-conspirator in the D.C. case, January 6th case. So John Eastman is kind of a, you know, the figure who was engineering a lot of the legal shenanigans behind the Trump coup. Anyway, they did a role play of like how that would work. Um, and one of the players in the role play, we now know because the Heritage Foundation documents were just leaked this week, was a guy called Gladden Pappen, whom I must admit I had never heard of. But shortly after Gladden Poppin was engaged in this cool, you know, this Trump coup role play, Orban named him the director of something called the Hungarian Institute of Foreign Affairs. That's just the most recent person who's in the Trump inner, inner, inner circle, because you wouldn't put people into the role play unless you were really part of the, you know, the, the coup plot. <laughs> and then this guy gets immediately named thereafter the head of this new institute with government money in Hungary. So there are a lot of ties between the Trump camp and the, um, you know, and the, the, the Orban government. Um, that said, so why doesn't Biden say anything? Well, oh yeah, such a long story. I mean, I'm not sure. So first of all, um, the Biden administration has put a really effective um, ambassador in Hungary, who is brilliant at trolling Orban. <laughs> so there is a U.S. presence now in Hungary for the first time in all the years since Orban, you know, came back to power in 2010 and started becoming a dictator. We've had a series of ambassadors who were, shall we say, unwilling to stand up to him. Um, now we have an ambassador who's great at standing up to Orban, and that's a Biden administration accomplishment. Um, it's also the case that the various State Department reports, ranging from the Human Rights Report to the 
you know, investor climate report, and there's a whole bunch of reports the State Department produces, and those are pretty hard hitting, you know, about Hungary. So, you know, behind the scenes or in places where the American public doesn't notice, but where the foreign policy geeks and the folks in Hungary notice, the Biden administration has come down much harder on Hungary than any of his predecessors. So all that's going on, they're just not doing a giant public thing with it. Well, there was, of course, uh, th that Hungarian fascist that was in, in Trump's administration. Right, Sebastian Gorka, right, right, the guy who shows up at Trump's inauguration. People keep calling it a neo-Nazi uniform, and I always have to say, no, that was the uniform from the 1930s. That's like the Hungarian Nazi party uniform. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so this guy was bounced out, but he's still, you know, in in uh, Orban's orbit and also in Trump's orbit. He hasn't gone away. And there, there are many others. Steve Bannon has strong ties between the two. Um, the person who was Trump's lead, um, you know, special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker. Kurt Volker speaks fluent Hungarian, is good buddies with Orban. I've seen them at, you know, meetings, chatting with each other amicably and so on. So there's a whole network of Republicans, both middle of the road like Volker and then extremists like Gorka. Um, and Papen and these others, you know, who are all connected to Orban and know him very well. But we know, of course, that the our speaker, Mike Johnson, of course, is holding up aid to Ukraine. I mean, they're, use, they're using the border issue, which the Republicans have no interest in solving the, the, the border crisis, but they're going to demagogue it for political purposes, and they're using that as a way to put Biden on the spot and have to make unpleasant choices about the border, which will hurt Biden's electoral chances. So that game is being played here in the United States at the expense of Ukraine. But the $52 billion that the EU has on the table now that Orban is trying to sabotage or stall, that is clearly desperately needed, isn't it, in the absence of the U.S. helping Ukraine? Well, absolutely. I mean, the more of Ukraine's allies are having trouble raising money, to help Ukraine, the worse off Ukraine is. And so the the European aid was, um, you know, also something Ukraine was counting on. So, but here's the thing. I mean, the EU, unlike the US, <laughs> which gets stuck every time there's divided government and you got some obstructionist block in one house or another of Congress, and then the US just gets paralyzed to the point where its government shuts down. Um, that cannot happen in the EU. The EU has a lot of other ways to do things, a lot of ways to go around obstruction of states. So one thing I'm sure that the EU is preparing, in fact, they just had what they call a trilogue, which is a meeting between the commission, the council, and the parliament, the three primary organs uh, involved in lawmaking in the EU. They just had a trilogue yesterday on this point. So they, what they are doing is getting ready um, what they call a facility the, the EU may have many ways to go around obstructionist states, but they have a very limited vocabulary. So facility is one of those words that pops up all the time. And what a facility is, is a legal arrangement for either raising or spending money outside the, the footprints of the EU budget. So one thing that's always open to the EU is that they can create a so-called facility established by international agreement among the other 26 EU member states leaving out Orban. And those 26 member states can agree by treaty to raise a certain amount of money for Ukraine by going to the markets to raise that money 
and agreeing to pay that money back from their individual treasuries um, when the time comes. So that's a different way of raising money than originally the EU had in mind. EU originally had in mind funding Ukraine by just expanding the EU budget and using EU funds directly. But they have this other thing in reserve and they're just the, the various um, lawmaking bodies of the EU are putting finishing touches on that so-called facility this week because next week there's a summit at which if Orban continues to veto putting aid to Ukraine inside the EU budget, the other 26 are going to whip out this document, sign it in front of Orban and say, we're going to do it anyway, at which point Orban's anticipating this, by the way, so Orban's already saying at home, you see, we've won because we weren't going to go into debt for Ukraine, but if these other states want to go into debt for Ukraine, fine with them. They're just stupid. We are the smart ones. <laughs> That's what Orban's saying at home. So he's, you know, he can't do anything about it, but he's acting... He's acting a little bit like the little prince, you know, from that children's book where he commands the sun to rise and then it rises. So he looks all powerful. So Orban is like commanding the EU to go outside the budget to fund Ukraine. And lo and behold, they're doing it, showing Orban's power. <laughs> so yeah. that's what they're going to do instead. So Ukraine's going to get the money. The only question is how they actually finance it and what the legal structure looks like for getting them that money underneath the surface. And the more you just talk about this guy, the more, I mean, it's bad enough having Trump, of course, here, but this guy is, is cleverer than Trump. <laughs> oh, yeah. Orban is, Orban is really, um, yeah, so a couple of things about Orban. First of all, he is, so Orban is very clever. You know, he's legally very smart, so he knows what all the legal options are. He's politically very clever. So one of the things he does is he says out loud, a lot of things that he knows other member states in the EU are thinking. So, you know, not all the member states are so completely eager to fund Ukraine, but they're eager to show solidarity with each other. So mm -hmm. by having this alternative out to the side, Orban's tempting other states to join him, you know, and we'll see if any other states say, look, we're not going to go in for funding mm. Ukraine once that option is open. So, sure. you know, the longer Orban holds out, the more he's likely to get this. But there is one other thing, you know, that he is likely to do just back on the Ukraine point. And that is at the last minute, he may just agree to fund Ukraine, not at the level at which the EU's proposing it, but at some other level. It says, well, let's fund them for four months or six months, and then we're going to come back and do it again. Because the other thing you see Orban doing now, because remember, the EU's withholding all these billions of euros that Orban wants to get. So he wants as many opportunities as possible to blackmail the EU into giving him money in exchange for his votes. So what Orban also does, like if he doesn't, you know, insist the 26 go outside the treaties, what he may do is say, okay, I'll agree to four months of funding, which gives him another veto point four months down the road, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you see him coming out with proposals where there are endless veto points you know, in fact, on the except he he um, uh, exceeded in without voting for Ukrainian accession to the EU, but he knows, and in fact, he gave a press conference in Hungary that says we have 37 other points that we can veto <laughs> along the way toward Ukraine actually becoming a member state. So we'll just sit this one out. So Orban also just multiplies veto points, so he pushes down the road. 
you know, so the next commission is going to have to deal with it. And the one, you know, so he just creates the veto point so he can hold out his hand and get cash. Well, Kim Lane Shepley, I thank you so much for joining us here today and filling us in on this uh, leptocratic <laughs> crook who is. Uh, well, unfortunately, so... Orban's always in the news. So glad that you keep coming back to me. I'm sure <laughs> we'll have to talk about this again sometime. Yeah. But thanks. If only we could stop it. Uh, and again, <laughs> so, I've been speaking with uh, Kim Lane Shepley, who's a professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University. And from 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program on gender and culture. And after 1989, Shepley studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. And she's the author of 9-11, The Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.